questions? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Does it kind of go like woo 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 woo? Okay. Yeah. You're maybe noticing your what's called saccades. Uh, the uh, so you if you're you might want to try going back to a different object like sound. A different a different anchor. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but also you're not if you use a visual object in this style of practice, you're not trying to focus on that object. You're just letting the eyes rest on that object. So don't try to look at it. Am I making sense? Just let your eyes your, we did that exercise, your eyes naturally kind of focus on something. So once they do that, just let them settle on that. Or you can choose something that you're confident, you know, it's a high contrast thing. You just let it settle. But you don't need to look at it. Okay? So that might help. And if, it will waver a little. Well, you might, you might, yes. You mean try to encourage, this is an anchor, so we do want to try to use this for stability. But, so, you know, your, your goal is not to have the eyes flickering around a bit. Uh, but you're, you know, don't push that too hard, because we're only going to use the anchor occasionally anyway. All right. Any other questions about this content? Yes, or practice? Okay. Okay. All you meditators. Any special instructions or advice for walking meditation? Uh, we usually walk on our hands in this. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, not really. I wouldn't say walking is can be in this style. It's not used that often, but it is. It can definitely be effective. I think the idea with the walking part of what it is is, and we're going to talk more about this soon. But is um, in the walking, don't do you know. Heal the, the, the sort of the everything. Instead, try to be just a sense of in the whole body moving. So take the whole body and allow that be a kind of anchor. But use your, like, in a sense, one way, one way to do this is use your peripheral vision a lot. Try to see out the sides of your eyes. Aware of the whole body, seeing out the sides of your eyes. That that is the way of using walking. It's not that done that often, but that will, in my experience, can can work. Does that make sense? Yeah. I have a good advertisement. I was just out. So <laughs> if you're in the woods, you've got to pay attention because there's rocks and stuff. But really, this spacious—it's so beautiful. I mean, it's it's so freeing. I'm not worrying about anything except being present. It's wonderful and. Um, you do have to wash out, yeah, if you're not. That's true. That's Thank you. That is, You should be careful if you're on a rocky path and so on. But even there, you can still kind of open up in that way using, in a sense, trying to see 360 as you're moving. Uh, so we'll talk more about some aspects of that soon. Okay, other questions? No one wants to do philosophy. What's going on? <laughs> yes? If it's not appropriate the question, that's okay. okay? Yeah, sure. Look at the classes that we have in the morning. I come to a conclusion that Buddhism does not exist. That there is not a core. That there is a Buddhism is a cluster with many things. Like when we say in classification, fruit. Fruit itself does not exist. But when you put peach, put all the things together, that are the fruits. Then my question for you is, Buddhism, Buddhism itself, and that word, 
does not exist as a philosophy or religion. What exists is a multiplicity of things that make that word to come about. Yes, so as you will see, it will be very Buddhist at a certain point for you to say that Buddhism doesn't really exist. That will be a very Buddhist thing to say soon. Tomorrow, probably. Uh, however, uh, what we can say is that there is, the, I think, that consistency of what it means. So, first of all, Buddhism is not a Buddhist word. It's a Western word. right? So, when, you, when Buddhists themselves talk about uh, you know, their community or, or what they're doing, they might use the word Buddha Dharma, right? the Dharma of the Buddha. In Sanskrit, you might get a there's a, an adjective bauda, which is formed from the word Buddha. And Buddhists in India use that sometimes, but not that much. Tibetans call themselves insiders, nangba, as opposed to outsiders, which is an interesting kind of terminology. Yeah. Are you a nangba? Are you an insider? Yeah, that's an interesting just the, just the way they they do it. Uh, but I think if you if it's, so the whole point, what we said is, rather than thinking of Buddhism as orthodoxy, where there's like a creed everyone has to accept and believe, which contradicts the idea of 84,000 different kinds of teachings for 84,000 different kinds of people, right? instead of there being an orth, a, a creed, there is a kind of practice. And you could say there's also a kind of common goal. So that common goal, the thing that really does unite Buddhists, but does you know other people are, are interested in this as well, is basically the uh, the relief of suffering. Right, that's a common goal, a kind of liberation or moksha. That's certainly a common goal, and the use of the word nirvana to describe that in some fashion that's a, that's something that you really see across Buddhist traditions. But there are Buddhist traditions who don't emphasize that very much. In East Asia, for example. So it's not, uh, but that idea of being part of a community, of the Sangha, right, and of in some sense the importance of the historical Buddha as a, as a figure who conveyed this, these teachings, those things also are very consistent. Uh, but it wouldn't be, yeah, the whole idea here is it's not, you can't really pin down exactly, you know, what. Or what is it that makes everyone who says they're a Buddhist a Buddhist? And that's that's a strength. Not that's a not a failing, but a strength. Or a, not not a bug, but a feature, as the IT people say. Okay, so uh, here we are. This is the Upanishadic model, right? The the sort of the Upanishads also like the appendix to the Veda. They're also also called Vedanta, the end of the Vedas. And this is a model which is saying that the fundamental problem is dissatisfaction. We talked some about that. We'll probably talk more about it. Dukkha, a word that the Upanishadic traditions, not just Buddhism, will use across the board. So why are we dissatisfied? Because basically grasping stuff and rejecting some stuff doesn't bring us happiness. I want this stuff. This is the good stuff. I want that. This is the bad stuff. I don't want. I want to get rid of this, or I want to avoid it, or it's in me, and I want to uproot it. Whatever it is, the good, getting the good stuff and getting and avoiding or getting rid of the bad stuff isn't working. Okay, and why is that the case? It's because of a belief that the conditions, things that we get through grasping and rejecting, will satisfy the self. Somehow my font went off there. Okay, so for example. And, and why is that? Why is that happening? Because I have an association of the self with those conditioned things. And why is that happening? Because I'm confused about the nature of the self. Okay, so take it. Let's just suppose I thought I was, you know, a Tesla. Nice car. And uh, so I pull into the Tesla place and I take one of those plugs and I go, and well, it didn't work. It like it's not what I need. Or maybe I think I'm an old-fashioned Volkswagen and I pull into the gas station. It's a gasoline. It doesn't work. Why not? Right? Guzzling something down doesn't seem to help. Why not? 
because I am not that kind of being that will be satisfied, that will be fed, so to speak, by you know a supercharger or gasoline. So that's a confusion about my nature. So the idea here is, again, across the board, that this, the ordinary stuff that we can get, the conditioned things, meaning the causally produced things that are the objects of our senses, right, including our mental sense, that they, whenever we get what we think is good and avoid the stuff that we think is bad, maybe it works for a little while, but it does not work it, it, it does not make, give us the kind of lasting satisfaction that we're seeking or a relief of that dissatisfaction. And the claim is that that's because those things can't make the kind of self that I have, who I truly am, they can't make me happy. They can't relieve that satisfaction because the kind of thing that I am is not of that kind of stuff. You get it? Right? I'm not the kind of thing that can be satisfied by conditioned objects of the senses. Okay? So up to this point, that's consistent with Buddhism. So far. So far. Yeah. And then, so what do we do? We look for what the real self is. Okay? And, this is, I think you're anticipating this, Everybody else pretty much says, oh, the reason is that you have this very special self, which we call an Atman. And so the famous Upanishadic phrase, you know, tattvam asi, you are that in Sanskrit. You are actually this transcendental self that for some Upanishadic philosophies is equivalent to a kind of, to Brahman, I'm not sure why the fonts have gone off, but they have. Uh, is Oh, they're not off. Huh. Weird. Anyway. Uh, uh, that this Brahman, remember we talked about the kind of web that underlies the universe, that makes the ritual work, right? So I'm actually that. That's my true nature. That's what my Atman, this is a very important term, is. So it's like I'm a ghost in the shell, so to speak. There's this, this soul that is trapped inside of this physical body, this material body, and what I need to somehow do, now that I know that's the case, I've got to free it somehow. Right? So that's one solution, is to say, oh, we look for the real self. You were right. This is, or, you know, the, the intuition that, oh, somehow this stuff isn't making me happy, that's correct, because your kind of self you know, is even beyond sensory experience in some fashion. Okay? That's one answer. The Buddhist answer is, you don't have any self of that kind at all. You're trying to make a square circle happy. A squircle. You ever heard of a squircle, right? It's like you're trying to paint a squircle. Like you can't... If you have a squircle collection, you know, you can worry about it, buy insurance, like do a lot of things, but, you know, what's the point? You can't make an non-existent self happy. So the reason all of that stuff isn't working is not that there's some soul in there that you have just not understood its true nature. It's that you don't have that kind of self. So all the attempts to make that kind of self happy, of course, fail. Okay? that clear? So that's the insight. But the key thing to see here is that there's a kind of Upanishadic attitude, which is really the same across multiple traditions, like Jainism and the Ajivakas who died out, and uh, various other traditions that then emerge out of this period, like later Vedanta. But the Buddhists are coming up with a radically different conclusion, which is actually not that there's this transcendental self, which you just, you know, mistakenly think can be made satisfied by perceptual experience or the things of the world, but actually that there's no such thing at all. And that's why all the attempts fail. Yes? So is that the kind of underlying rationale for, like, the caste system? You are Brahmin, Actually, this would flatten out the caste. So this is a different term than that. This is a neuter uh, term in, in Sanskrit. There's also a, a masculine term that... Uh, that has to do with uh, a, a deified form of that principle. 
Brahmana is the is the caste. So it is formed from this word, but it's a different word. So this actually flattens out the caste system, in fact. Because everyone's got this. Yeah, everyone has, yeah. Right. And that's part of what happens in this period, including not, not just Buddhism, that certain philosophies start to kind of flatten out the caste system or question it in, in various ways. Okay, yes? Hayana, doesn't mind take the place of Brahma? No. And all things are created by the that, mind? Uh, no, not exactly. I mean, we are, you, yes and no. We'll see. The thing about Brahman is that it is a, a transcendental entity. It's kind of behind things, not in front of things. Right? Generally, for Upanishadic. Yes, go ahead. That was uh, using Vedanta and with a lot of roots in Hinduism. Okay. And I always heard that one of the differences with Buddhism was the self, uh, which is so prominent in some of our practices of meditation and understanding of samadhi. But now I'm doing the Buddhist practices, and I don't feel that interfering with... um, don't feel the clash. Uh, does it make sense? Yeah, I could see that. It really will depend on the practice you do. So as we go forward, let's see what happens. I think you may find that there will be some tension. But there are also versions of Buddhism, including the one that we're sort of headed toward, Chakzok, Mahmudra Dzogchen, which can start to sound a little bit like they're, they're sort of going back to something like this, actually. Yeah. Uh, one of the uh, teachers in the lineage that at some point had a meeting with the Dalai Lama, and in, uh, before talking, they said, "Well, is there anything that we don't want to go to?" And the Dalai Lama said, "Yes, the self." Okay. Yeah, the self. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was a good choice of His Holiness. He's often very strategic that way. Yeah, don't go to the self because there will be a, a maybe a pointless argument, right? Hard to convince people in certain contexts. So with that model in place, that's how uh, this, the, remember the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, the noble's four truths emerge. So this is a, the Arya Satya, right? The, the, this is a compound actually, and you could translate that compound as meaning noble truth, a truth that is noble, but another translation, which I think is more suggestive and that we find in, in certain commentarial traditions, is that it's a truth for nobles, a noble's truth, meaning it's truth, true to people who, in a sense, are ready for it. Right? There are some accounts in which the first person, the Buddha meant as he's walking up to uh, Sarnath, where he's going to give, meet his old friends, his, his fellow practitioners, uh, we'll talk a little bit about later. He's walking up there, and the first person he meets at a roadside shelter sort of says, "Well, you're like glowing, you're amazing, you know." And the Buddha says a few things about it, and is, "Yeah, whatever," and he leaves. Right? The other fellow is just somehow doesn't work. The, he's not. He's not interested. He's like, "It's nice, but he's not interested." In a sense, you could say he wasn't ready for what the Buddha was teaching. So one way to think about these truths is that they're noble truths for those of us who have the capacity or in a place where we can hear them, so to speak. They're true to us. And that idea of contextual truth is going to turn out to be important as, as time goes on in terms of the development of Buddhism. So we've all, who's heard of these? Who's not heard of these before? Don't be embarrassed. Everyone's heard of these before. That's great. Uh, Yes? Before we go on, could you, in this context, explain what you mean by cessation? cessation? Because there's a lot of different ways to look at that. But within the context of these four noble truths... We are going to do that. Yeah. So we'll come back to that. Yes. It is the simple version of cessation that, in some ways, everyone will agree with, is it's, it's the cessation of karma and klesha which in some ways doesn't say a lot. But it, you can always say that. Like that's at least that much has ceased. And we'll explain that 
shortly. So the main thing here is this idea, what I just said, karma and klesha. The origin of suffering is our karmic conditioning and the negative mental states that both drive that conditioning and are driven by it in a kind of reciprocal fashion. Okay? We, so we have suffering, we have an origin, we have in principle a cessation, at least of that, of karma and klesha, and therefore a cessation of suffering. And then we have a path that is a means of getting there. All right? So what do we mean by karma? Karma, basically, it's a very important term. It literally means action. But it's, that's not what it means in this context. Okay? That's very important to understand. When we talk about karma, we're really pointing to something called in Sanskrit, chetana, which means an intention. So every time we engage in an action, a mental, physical, or vocal action, there's an intention that's driving that action. So karma actually, we can say, refers to two things. It refers to the intention that immediately motivates the action. Okay, so this is therefore said to be a metaphor, an upachara, a metaphor. How is it a metaphor? It's like I hold up an apple, an apple seed, and I say, here's an apple tree. Right? It's not the apple tree, it's the seed of the tree. Likewise, if I say, oh, that's karma, I really mean it's, the ca- it's not action, which is what karma literally means. It's the cause of the action, a fundamental cause. Not the only cause, but the main fundamental cause and the most relevant cause of the action. And that's going to be the intention that drives the action. Okay? So that's the primary meaning, technical meaning of karma. But then also it refers to the mental conditioning or imprints that come from that intention. This is a less technical usage, but you'll see the word used that way. There are other terms like anushaya and so on, vasana, that are used to talk about the imprints, but we can use karma as well in that way. So again, it's the, it's the intention motivating an action, and it's the intention motivating an action, and it is the imprints that are left behind by that intention. Okay? So... We can talk now, so, so the source of suffering is karma and klesha. That's the second noble truth. We talked about karma. What's klesha? We often in the Mahayana uh, traditions just talk about three kleshas, three primary kleshas. There are going to be different lists according to which Abhidharma you follow. So there are going to be primary kleshas, and then uh, there are the three root kleshas, and there are primary kleshas and secondary kleshas. Conveniently, for our purposes, all of the different kinds of kleshas and all of the Abhidharmic lists can be organized under one of these three categories. All of them are, in a sense, permutations of either desire or attachment, of dislike or aversion, and ignorance or confusion. Okay? Sorry? Yes, the same. So desire, you can say hatred. Hatred is a little too strong because, you know, even if you just go, eh, I don't like that, that's, that's a klesha. Right? Doesn't that, again, have to be dramatic in order for it to be a klesha? It's a thing, one way to think about these is that they are tied to certain types of behaviors. Right? So desire is mostly tied to approach behaviors. I want that. Aversion or dislike is tied to uh, withdrawal behaviors or avoidance behaviors. I don't want that. And ignorance is tied to basically uh, uh, behaviors that involve ignoring things, like, uh, what? I don't know. Right? Not even seeing things. Okay? So those are, that's one way to think about how these are manifest in our experience. For the Mahayana, the root cause of suffering is avidya across all of the different schools and in, not just the Mahayana but also that version of the Abhidharma that Mahayana is drawing on right remember the Vaibhashika and the Sautrantika so they, everyone agrees in that kind of four schools which we're treating as three Abhidharma Madhyamaka and Yogacara this is all it's all going to be the root of everything is avidya is ignorance Okay, which is a kind of, not just a non-knowing, it's also you can think of it as an active 
misknowing. Okay? And that then comes to, well, how does this actually work? And this, I'm, here's a kind of model of consciousness that explains at least partially this, this process. So first of all, the kind of model that we find, which also comes from earlier Buddhist models, but gets refined in the, in the Savasavada Abhidharma. This is pretty generic. We're not going to drill down too deeply. But the basic idea here is that consciousness is actually a series of discrete moments flowing through time, right? And each moment is causally producing the next moment. So consciousness itself is a causal entity, right? And it's going boom, 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 boom. How long are the moments? It depends on which Abhidharma school you, you talk about. You know, like the one we've been referring to says it's 164th of a second. 164th of a snap of a finger, rather. You know, so I don't know, is there, maybe there's a monk somewhere in the Himalayas, like keeping time for all of us, but uh, the, uh, you never know. But uh, So it's a very short period. Right? In the, I believe in the Pali Abhidhamma, there's discussion even of there being like 10,000 moments in that kind of a period. So it, there can be different accounts. But the basic idea is going to be the same, that you're going to have conditioning that's flowing along with consciousness. So consciousness is causal. Therefore, there can be also other conditions that are contributing to each subsequent moment of, of consciousness. And that's going to be karmic intentions, beliefs, what we would call emotions, even though that doesn't work, exist in the Buddhist technical vocabulary, expectations, and so on. Okay? But the main thing that's going to be, for our purposes, the main kind of form of conditioning is ignorance itself. Right? Because the way, and here's how it works. So we take one moment of this, con- of this flow of consciousness, and we have a perceptual moment. So I don't know. You see, uh, you see an apple or something, okay, or a cup of coffee, whatever it is. And in the next moment, now this kind of division, this is a really key division. The idea that there's a kind of pre-interpretive perceptual moment, followed by an interpretive perceptual moment, is something that is especially important for the Mahayana approach to this issue. It's not necessarily that clear of whether these are separated in in the early Buddhist material, the moment of just a kind of pre-interpretive perception and then an interpretation of the perception. It's not clear how clearly separated they are in the early material. They may be, and Bhikkhu Analyo could probably tell us, but uh, in the Mahayana material, this separation is really key. Okay? So there's a moment of perception, then there's an interpretation, like, Something that's, you just have this sensory information come in, and you say, and then you interpret it. It's an apple. Okay? Following that interpretation, there's going to be an intention, some kind of a behavioral response to the interpretation. And that, interpre- that intention is karma. On some models, these may be bundled together. But mostly for Mahayana, they're not. Okay? So we have an intention. And then after the intention, what happens? We're going to actually engage in the action. Or even if we don't engage in an action, we're at least going to get an imprint. Now the key aspect of this model is that because every moment of consciousness is is... Ignorance is present in every moment of consciousness. Therefore, every moment of consciousness is distorted, is affected by ignorance. That means that the moment of perception is affected by ignorance. But also, especially for, our, for this level of philosophy, the moment of interpretation is affected by ignorance. Okay? And because the interpretation is affected by ignorance, the intention is going to be faulty, distorted by ignorance, and the action is going to end in frustration. So when we think of what is ignorance, ignorance, as we will see, but briefly, is a distorted sense of my own identity. That there is that kind of self that I can make satisfied, either by eating an apple, 
or drinking the cup of coffee, or maybe I'm an apple hater, and by throwing the apple against the wall in a fit of anger, whatever it is, that by doing that, there's a self in here that I'm going to make satisfied. So because I'm walking around with a sense of there being that kind of self, it distorts my interpretation of the world. Not exactly. I wouldn't call it a separate self necessarily, but the, the belief in a particular... We're going to talk about what kind of self, capital S self. At this, this is the first level of analysis. This is the, from this standpoint, this is the Abhidharma level of analysis. right? And the, Remember, we're going to do three levels. We're going to do Abhidharma. Then we're going to have Madhyamaka. It's going to come next, historically. Then we're going to talk about Yogacara. So we're at that first level. Okay? So this is a misunderstanding about the nature of personal identity. Right? An essentialized notion of personal identity. That, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the features of that kind of self shortly. Okay? But I just want to make sure that this model is clear. So you have, a, you know, I'm kind of, it's, let's just suppose I think that, I don't know, you know, there's like a... Uh, there's a blue monster in the middle of my brain, which is who I really am. And if I can just like get the right kind of you know, red apples at the right color, then everything will be okay. So I'm just constantly running around looking for apples. And I know this is strange, but you know. But, and I'm like you know, che- checking their colors, and I eat some of them. It doesn't work. You know? So I'm like, all of my experience is kind of colored by this obsession. Right, which is about something that does is completely false. So it's a little bit like being a conspiracy theorist, you know. It's like we all have the conspiracy theory of a self. So we're kind of running around trying to organize a whole world is just revolving around that. Okay, you had a question. Or just that there is a there is that kind of self that is unhappy. So there now, is no self of that kind that's unhappy. That's unhappy. So now that's my interpretation that this isn't going to change. So I that, find something. Yeah. A piece of chocolate, a glass of wine, whatever. Yes. So another way of thinking about this is the claim here is that all of our, as we're going through the world, right, and we're experiencing things, that in the end, everything is coming back to it's all about me. And it's about a particular kind of me, right? A particular version of what I think me is. But the Buddhists will say is like a squircle, like it's an impossible me. Is that like impossible burger? But, you know, it's like I can't, be that, there couldn't possibly be that kind of person. So self, no self does not mean that you had a self and we get rid of it. No self means I had a crazy idea about who I was and now I'm rid of the idea. So the idea is there, but the thing that it refers to was never there. Like there is no little blue monster in my, inside of my brain. Right? Or, you know, maybe there's a blue monster in my closet and I'm like, you know, running around town like getting, looking for things to make the blue monster happy and all my experience is just about that. Everything is, how does it relate to the blue monster? And it doesn't, there isn't a blue monster. Yes? Yes. No, that you wouldn't want to say. No, you can still use the word self. 
as long as you know that it's a convenient designation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. You can still talk about that thing as long as you don't think it's referring to... It's a kind of way of using the word. The way I do this is I capitalize the, the S. So a capital S self is a kind of impossible self. We'll talk about its features in a second. That kind of self, never existent, could never exist. It's logically impossible. So that is never... You can't have any theories about that kind of self because there's no such thing. As a way of talking about this mind-body system, it's okay. You could say you can use person or you know, even give it... You, know, you could talk about self, maybe a psychological version, depending, as long as it doesn't slip into those errors. The danger, of course, is that it's very easy to slip into those errors with that word. So Buddhist authors generally avoid it, but not always. So we're going to find out. Now, you can talk about it in conventional terms. We'll see what that means shortly. If I have one more yeah. question. When the Buddhists made this move, yeah. and you got, in, in lieu of talking about not mind, you're talking about the Abhidhamma, basically, yeah. the theory of what the person is, mm-hmm. did, did, did the, um, but became the Hindus also develop something like Abhidhamma? They have, yeah, they have competing systems. Not, there's, yeah, there are systems that are not Yes, correct. Yeah, so there were definitely competing theories about how perception worked, about how inference works, about the fundamental features of the mind. There were definitely competing theories, yes. But you could think of the Buddhist theory as a kind of theory that evolves to try to explain how the mind, how perception... A behavior is operating without positing any kind of absolute capital S self. Whereas the other systems were interested in, in theories that would support that kind of a self. Right? But that's going to make a logical experience that we as human beings have a, there is a me, there's a self that is me, that's a small self, that would be okay? Or is that... Uh, let's say that for now, let's say for now it's okay. Let's say it's okay for now. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's move on. I'm going to just go through, because this we sort of, well, maybe we should quickly say. So, you know, here it is, very, very, uh, hopefully fairly clear. The real question here, actually, is where, do you, where are you going to make your intervention? What's the so where where is the most important place of intervention? So it seems like an understanding of self, of what self is. So is it here? Well, I had it first thought. Perception and interpretation. Yeah, some okay, or maybe yeah. Somehow you need to alter this, right? So when the first layer is mostly about this, one way to do this, of course, is to just stop perceiving. Seriously. So that involves certain types of practices which the Buddha, they say, experimented with before he became a Buddha, which is uh, a term for that is pratyahara, where you just withdraw the mind entirely inward and retract the senses entirely. And that was a technique that was used by non-Buddhist schools, and it, and it works temporarily. Right? So once that state decays, which the Buddhists would claim will always eventually decay, even if you were born as a god that is in that kind of a state, it will eventually decay. And you'll be back to where you began. Because you have not uprooted the fundamental problem. So for the early interpretation from this standpoint, again, the way we're doing it with the Sanskrit Abhidharma, the real kind of target is going to be primarily the interpretation. Right? Is that clear? Like, I'm interpreting the world in relationship to this self, which doesn't exist. So that doesn't mean I'm consciously necessarily doing that. It can be, in a sense, just a feature of my whole conceptual system without me constantly thinking about the self. But it is structuring my conceptual system. It's structuring my interpretation of the world. So I'm always out there kind of basically looking for the good stuff and the bad stuff relative to this self, 
which means the intention is always involved with, uh, you know, a distorted sense of desire and dislike. So I may not actually, I might be able to, maybe I'm getting angry and let's say I restrain myself, but even then I'm going to have some imprint in my mind. I get some karma. And uh, so the imprint always occurs and suffering follows because basically this doesn't work. Nothing I, you know, I can't make an unreal being happy. Okay? All right. So, yes. Huh, yeah. Then, but I never saw any regret for this came from wood. Like the same thing. Well, they may have come up with it. They may have come up with it. I have, you know, after I kind of developed this, so this is not a kind of, you'll see this model, it's not, they don't use diagrams in the, in the Sanskrit texts generally. But, uh, you know, this is extracted from those kinds of, of works. Later, I, when I was started working with psychologists, they said, oh, that's kind of like CBT. Yeah. It's kind of like CBT. And it turns out to be, yeah, it is kind of like CBT, yeah. surprisingly. And when the Dalai Lama met, who's the founder of CBT oh, again? Beck. Yeah, when he met Aaron Beck, they were like, wow, we kind of like do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really interesting, actually. Uh, okay, what is ignorance? Let's get specific now. First of all, ignorance is a type of error, Right? Atasvins tadjnana in Sanskrit. It's where you take some non-X and you think that it is X, right? So let's say I suppose my, I sort of believe that this laser pointer is my wife. And you know, she, I mean, she never talks to me and pays any attention and kind of cold, you know, and other people pick her up and it's like, you know, terrible. And so, so, Right? That's, I'm, it's a distorted belief, right? I'm confused. How do I eliminate that? The, exist, the, the error here is not that. That would be a t- pretty terrible error too, but it's the belief that the mind-body system, which is not the locus of an unchanging, internal, independent, eternal, independent self. That's the key. It's a particular kind of self. We're going to add some additional qualifiers, but for our purpose, just these three initially. Unchanging, eternal, and independent. Right? That, it, that this stuff, this psychophysical stuff, that somewhere there is in here either one of the elements, one of the pieces of this collection is a self, or else somehow all of them together constitute a self. Of that kind. Again, we're going to add a few more qualifiers, right? So this is a particular kind of error. It's the, this is a non-X. This is not the locus of that kind of self, and I'm perceiving it as the locus of that kind of self. Just as, you know, if I think there's a blue monster in my closet, maybe I've had it too much of something or whatever, but I think there's a blue monster in my closet, I think that my closet is a blue monster home, but it's not. Same way, okay? You get that? So how does it lie at the root? You feel that you have this. This is not just a belief. This is like a deep, deeply ingrained habit. You have this absolute self. You try to make it happy and free it from suffering. You think that these objects are going to make this happy or make that self happy or free it from suffering, and none of that works, right? So we've been through that already. So let me just skip here. But what kind, let's get a little more precise now about what kind of self we're talking about. We're not saying that we're just eliminating altogether the idea that there are people that we could use that term even. Again, even the word self perhaps. But what we're, in a particular way, but what we are saying is that it can't be unchanging. Okay, there's not, and why would we think there's an unchanging self? Memory, yes. More than memory, actually, though. We think we have a perception of continuity of ourselves. But, but there's a particular behavior that we engage in a lot, especially humans, that... We have like a first-person narrative. Exactly. We have a narrative self. 
And this is especially evident when we do what in, in cognitive science would be called, in psychology, is called mental time travel. So we're all time travelers. We, can, we think about yesterday and we project ourselves into this afternoon or five minutes from now or next year or tomorrow. And when we do that, we don't think that, like if you're, let's just say, just imagine yourself right now, like what you're going to do uh, when we take a break in five minutes. Just think about that. And as you're imagining yourself getting up and going and, you know, whatever, getting coffee or whatever, do you think, oh, that's somebody else who's going to do that? Or let's say you got up this morning. Do you think, oh, can you, do you remember getting up? Just mental time travel back. You know, of course, it's imaginary to some extent. Memory's not perfect. Remember getting up vaguely and having breakfast. And you go, oh, that person did all that. That was interesting. I wonder who that was. Do you think that way? No. So this behavior of mental time travel, which is connected to what's called the notion of a narrative self, right, is, is uh, pervasive in our experience. And it requires that there be, like, it's the same character. It's not like, you know, I don't know, you choose your favorite, like, epic fantasy reality or something. You know, it's not like Frodo starts out, like, on the journey and then suddenly turns into Spock, you know, and the next day, and then it's like this, the character, it needs to be the same character. That's how we, that's how our mental time-traveling minds work. Okay? And so we think we're the same. Now, when we actually reflect a little bit, if I ask you, are you the same person that you were when you were five years old? Like, most people don't really just say, absolutely, I'm exactly the same person. Most people don't really feel that way. But are you a totally different, are you a different person? Thing is, so what do we do there? We cheat. We, we engage in what's called, you know, illogical thinking, irrational thinking. I'm both the same and not the same. Which, you know, works great when you're dealing with the traffic tickets. Like, well, the light was both red and not red. No, it doesn't seem somehow. So we have a sense of there being an unchanging or permanent self that's kind of built into our behavior, especially mental time travel. We have a sense that there's that same unchanging person is the one that's seeing the sights, that's seeing, that's hearing, that's tasting. It's the person who is also, in some sense, in control. Right? And the owner of this psychophysical stuff, you know, somebody's in charge. Somebody's in there, like, running the show. Okay? Nobody believes that? Really? Okay. Do, do me a favor. Do me a favor. Lift your arm. Lift your arm. Okay. Did you... Who did that? Is there, are you saying you don't have a sense that they were, you're in control? Yeah. I think you may be a minority position on this one. Yeah. I think you might be in a minority. I think most people intuitively they feel like somebody's in charge. Yes, exactly. Like who I am, me, it's not necessarily like an actual little guy. Maybe that's what you're objecting to. But we have a sense that I am in charge. Right? So if I lift my arm, I don't think you did it. Unless I have a certain form of psychosis. Yes? I, maybe this is a later development. Maybe it's an advantage. But in, in addition to the unchanging and impermanent. Yeah. Controller owner. Controller owner. There was a there was a sense that the Atman is um, is is happiness. It's it's sort of a little piece of God that we're in here, and therefore the spiritual quest is to connect with that, and therefore to connect. Yes, with that. God. Is that a later development? Yeah, it doesn't have to be God. So there, it no, because that was we were talking about that earlier. Atman, I maybe went over it too fast. Well, you presented it as the Atman is unhappy. 
Or you could say that it's more like we are experiencing unhappiness and the reason we, we, we mistakenly think that the reason we're doing this is that, oh, the, what that the solution to that is I just, you know, drink something or eat something or whatever it is that the material stuff of the world, the conditioned stuff of the world will, make, will satisfy, will eliminate this unhappiness. But the actual reason is that this immaterial, transcendental soul or self, Atman, is kind of stuck in this world. So we need to free it. And or, or, or connect, instead of looking outside for us to identify with the Atman, leave the world behind, well, and therefore achieve transcendence oh, through that. Oh, well, almost, yeah, almost, just to refine that a little bit. So how do we free it? We see it for what it really is. We stop associating it with this material world. What is it really? Brahman, which could later in later versions, it's God. So when it says tatvam asi, you are that, that is like you are actually this underlying universal principle or you are God. And by having that insight, then that sort of frees you out of this, you know, conditioned material existence. Because I always like the, you know, the Buddha setting up against the Atman saying, uh, anatta, no Atman. Yeah. that's rejected too. So the, the Buddha's three characteristics are direct negations of the definition. Oh, of I see. No, I don't think... I, that's, it's possible. I haven't seen that. So the idea of the Atman or Brahman being Sajjit Ananda, like real mind Nietzsche. bliss. No, Sajjit. Yeah, these Nietzsche's not in this sequence. But that the idea that it is like... Uh, not just who we really are, but that it is in, inherently blissful, that may be in the Upanishads. But when the Buddha is saying that the Atman, the Atman is not of the nature of suffering, because it doesn't have a nature at all. Right. What is of the nature of suffering is the stuff that makes up the mind-body system. Can I ask about the origin? So we're going to get back to that. Okay, we'll get, we'll get back to that. But the Atman is not of the nature of suffering or of happiness, because it doesn't exist. Yeah, from the uh, yeah. Because this divinity idea you're saying yeah. came later, the, the divine connotation. Of yes. Yep. So what's the origin of it? Was it religious? Where did it come from? Well, I I mean one one way to think about that, and we're going to take a break in a minute. But one way to think about that is that it came from this speculation about how does the Vedic ritual work? Like, why is it? Why would doing this process? manipulate the universe in a way that gets me what I want. So it, in a sense, it kind of comes from an inquiry into processes or even into causality. And that's going to turn out to be also a really key element of the Buddha's insight. And we'll come back to that maybe right after uh, we take a break. So let's take a five-minute break and try to come back a couple of minutes after three. Just a quick one. Is that it? For Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.